Okay, so uh, welcome everyone to Drisha. This is uh, the fifth class in this uh, series on navigating the employer-employee relationship with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. In this series, we explore a number of topics that address the nature of the employer-employee relationship, highlighting the rights and responsibilities of both sides. Uh, we encourage everyone here with us on Zoom to turn on their video if they're able to, so we can feel like we're together in a class setting. Um, also, you can feel free to ask questions uh, either by writing them uh, here in the chat box on Zoom, or I believe unmuting is also okay, right, uh, Rabbi Ziering? Um, yeah, That's right. so uh, also unmuting yourself um, to verbally mm -hmm. ask the question uh, as they come up. Uh, if you're watching us on uh, Facebook, we welcome you as well, and you're um, welcome to uh, type your question or comment uh, on the as a comment there on Facebook, uh, and I will read uh, the questions and comment to uh, Rabbi Ziering. And with that, I'll turn this to you, Rabbi Ziering. Okay, thank you so much, Evie. <clears throat> okay, so the uh, the first four weeks um, we dealt with the um, with many issues that touch on the responsibilities of um, employers and employees to, to each other, um, sometimes focusing on the direction of employer to employee, sometimes um, in the opposite direction. Um, but this week and next week, we're going to move away from that um, a little bit, and we're going to talk about the responsibility of people in the workplace for, uh, for ethical um, issues to ensure that, um, that ethical religious standards, um, whatever the case may be, are being kept. Um, this week, we're going to deal with um, what do you do? Like, what are the principles that guide um, the decisions that you make when you have an unethical um, employer, an unethical employee, um, and potentially an unethical um, partner um, or coworker? And then next week, specifically, we will zero in on, on whistleblowing um, as a, um, a means by which you deal with the problem. So again, today, this week, we're going to deal with sort of the overarching issues that, um, that go into it. And then next week, we will um, we'll come down just on the specific issue of, uh, of whistleblowing. Um, okay, so before we look at the, the sources, um, what, what halachic principles, what Torah ideas um, do you think about, do you think would help guide us um, as we think about how someone should deal with um, with the reality that maybe their their boss is doing something wrong, maybe their employee is doing something wrong, uh, maybe someone else in the workplace, right? What are the what are the principles um, at work? What are the factors at play that um, that have to be considered in terms of figuring out um, what to do, how to react? Um, what do you think? Just you know, before we before we look at the sources inside, what what do you think? And you're free to to as I said un, unmute or to um, or to or, or to message. Well, you could um, discuss it with, let's say, your employer is doing something inappropriate. You can call them out on it, discuss it. I don't know how helpful that is, but you can. Okay, great. So what? So the first thing you can do is is talk it out, right? It's not clear how helpful it would be, and again here the principle, and of course the power dynamic is gonna be complicated um, and different, whether it's the employer or the employee who's doing something wrong. And again, next week, we're gonna focus specifically on whistleblowing, which um, takes that sort of power dynamic into account. Um, but I think it was Diane who was talking, right? Um, Diane says the first thing you can do in theory, it may not be effective, but in theory, the first thing that you would wanna do is 
talk to the person, um, whether it be your boss, whether it be your employee, whether it be a coworker, um, and say, this is wrong. Um, and that's going to be your first, um, your first line of defense. And if you look at, I'll pull up the sources for a second. Um, that is the first category that I put here. And again, the, pra the, the practicality does have to be taken into account, but categorically, um, this is the first idea that I think has to be brought up. And this is the, the mitzvah of tochacha, of rebuke, <coughs> which is derived from the Pasuk in source one in Vayikra, Perikutet, Don't hate your brother in your heart. You shall rebuke or surely rebuke um, your friend. Um, and you shall not bear sin against him. Um, and as the Chatam Sofer um, notes in two and the, uh, the Jory Evan notes in three, um, this obligation seems to be um, more than just our obligation to ensure that um, people are acting properly, um, but seems to, at least when a Jew is involved, be derived from our particular obligations to ensure that, um, that the Jew is acting properly, right? We have a responsibility, not just towards the potential victim, um, which again is what we're going to talk about a little bit more next week, right? Whistleblowing is often an employee um, using um, publicity to to um, to let people know that something's going on to protect potential um, to victims um, and the like. Um, but when a Jew is involved, we have an added responsibility, not just to the victim, but to the perpetrator, as it were, uh, to make sure that they are acting uh, properly. As the Chatam Sofer says here in two, when it comes to Jews specifically, there we are instructed to prevent the Jew from sinning. Because Jews are responsible for each other. That aspect is either not existent or, or at least heavily diminished, at least um, when it comes to non-Jews, even when it comes to the things that they're obligated in, but that that um, high level of responsibility, and, and technically it's more, more than that. Arvut means um, co-signing, right? Where we're the guarantors for other people's spiritual well-being. Um, that's not, um, that level is not true. Unless the other person is Jew, um, and the Turi Evan um, says as well, you're obligated to separate people from sin when possible. Um, and this is true not just for, for adults who have their own spiritual culpability, um, but uh, it's true even for a um, for a child, for a minor who is not going to be held liable in, in heaven, let's say, for his sins. If you can, right? And this goes to Diane's second point is this in theory is the rule, right? In theory, the first thing you would want to do is to confront um, the person violating whatever norm we're talking about, let's say, um, stealing, embezzling, insider trading, um, or to be fair, just being nasty in the workplace, right? Yelling um, at people, um, um, you know, I don't know, come up with whatever you want in the workplace, right? It doesn't have to be something illegal. It doesn't have to be something major. It could be, you know, the same things we do in normal life, but they're exacerbated in the workplace, right? Where people are in bad moods and they're just 
you know, gruff to the other people in the office. Um, you're supposed to try to, to stop them. Um, but again, there is this uh, notion, there's this recognition <coughs> that it's not always possible. Um, and that has to be taken into um, account. I mean, Tosvot, for example, says, So Tosvot coming to Gemara on Shabbat says, listen, this is true even if you're not sure. Uh, even if you're not sure it's going to be effective. Um, because in the end of the day, God may know whether someone will be responsive when you tell them, listen, you know, you're being too rough, you're yelling at people in, in the office, it's really not right. Um, but we don't know, right? You don't know. It could be that your boss is um, just a nasty person, or it could be that your boss is having a bad day, they didn't sleep well, and if you just say, you know, listen, you know, you're being really harsh, um, you're really being, you know, mean over the top, they'll say, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't get a good night's sleep. It's possible, and if it's possible, so then it's worth at least bringing it up. Um, but if they're definitely not going to, and this is again Diane's point, if you know it won't work, right? You've tried this before. So then it's better not to bring it up because it only makes things worse, invoking a formal halachic principle, which is that it's better um, to let people violate accidentally than to turn them into willful um, violators. And Rabbi Yosef ibn Chaviv, the Mukha Yosef, number five, um, as well says, um, in a case, the only time you don't have to rebuke is when you know they wouldn't listen. But in case they might listen, or, you know, so that they can't say, well, why don't you say something, right? If things were so bad, if I was doing something so wrong, why don't you say something? Um, it's important at least once um, to try. Okay, so the first sources we, we have seen that said, yes, in theory, in theory, the first line of defense should be if, again, it could be something unethical and illegal, um, like theft, embezzlement, embezzlement um, insider trading, who knows. Um, but it could also be very simple things like people are being nasty um, in the workplace, right? They're just not being polite. Um, and you want to bring it up. The first line of defense would be to... So it would be tochacha would be to bring it up, raise the issue, and maybe that will work. Um, however, um, the first five sources dictate that if it's possible, this will be helpful, then you should at least try. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Weil in the Tshuva Mari Weil, number six, notes, however, um, that this is where um, either you have good reason to believe that the rebuke will work, or you at least have to try if it might work, but that's only if the alternative is it just won't work, right? Meaning if the two possibilities are, I say to my boss, um, you know, you were really rude this morning, you know, it's, do you mind um, toning it down? And they either say, um, you know, that's a really good point, I'm sorry, or they say, you know, I don't know, they just sort of shrug it off. So then I should at least try. But if there's a concern for, for danger or um, even monetary loss, right? So the possibility, let's say, that they would fire you simply for bringing it up. So then um, rebuke ceases to be an option. 
Um, that's what Mari Weil says. He says, If by rebuking them, I'd have to be worried about danger. They would hurt us or even just affect our possessions, which I guess included in that would be fire you. Um, so then you do not have to. That which we say that anyone who can protest um, should, if they don't, it's, it's bad. Um, Sakana. That's when there's no danger. Um, so, um, so again, in, in theory, if you're dealing with a case where um, where there is right, where there is um, um, you know whatever, there's a threat um, either physically or even monetarily with the possibility of protesting, of rebuking, of talking it out. So then that would be a mitigating factor. Um, and then the, the Talmud here at number seven brings a, uh, a story about um, issues of lineage of Lamzi Root. Um, and um, they note that at some point, right, they investigated people's lineage um, to see whether they were kosher until, and let's look at the last line, until they reached a point of danger and then desisted, right? So this idea that when um, being involved in rebuke is dangerous that you don't have to do it, right? That's tested in the Gemara. And again, the Ramah number eight um, makes the same point. Ramosha Israelis um, says, Whenever there's danger, you don't have to spend money. You don't have to right, put yourself out there for rebuke. Okay, so the first line of defense is, as Diane said, bring it up, protest, have a conversation, acknowledging it might not work. But if there's even a shot that it should work, you should at least try, unless there it's not just you know neutral versus positive, but if the alternative to it working is you get fired or you get hurt in some way. Um, so then um, we can take that off the table um, and, and think about other issues. So that's the first issue on the table. Okay, um, what's, the, what's the next? <clears throat> um, factor we need to, con to consider. And I'll just highlight, and maybe this will lead us to the next one, is that what's, what we're dealing with here specifically um, seems to be a case where the, um, let's say this is the employer doing something wrong. Um, the employee seems to not be implicated in it, right? Meaning what we're talking about here is how do you deal with someone where they are acting unethically, illegally, sinfully, whatever the case may be. Um, you're not implicated in it, but what can you do? So the first way would be to rebuke. Um, however, things get more complicated um, if you are in some way implicated. So what, what categories might, um, oh, the chest, just the sources. Okay, so what, what other factors might we have to take into account? What halachic principles? Um, might help us think about this. Okay, I'll uh, I'll I'll continue then. Um, so the second category we need to think about is what's known as lifnei iver, right? So the Torah says lifnei iver loti ten michshal. Before a blind person, don't put a stumbling block. Um, now. Um, there is a bit of a sort of odd discussion in the in the in the halachic authorities whether one who actually trips a blind person uh, violates this prohibition, um, or whether in halachic terms it comes to mean something totally uh, different. Um, but in halachic terminology, what we normally mean 
when we talk about lifting Aver is not tripping a blind person and is not even um, hurting people or harming people. I, even though that la- layer to halach um, is accepted in halacha by many poskim, um, and in fact is one of the the um, bases for the idea that you can't harm people sort of indirectly, um, and was invoked um, in a surprising number of, of halachic um, statements at the beginning of Corona. Um, about why one is responsible to um, to avoid going out on a halachic level when one is sick with corona or has reason to believe they might be sick with corona um, or doesn't take the necessary precautions um, was based on some expansions of lifna iver that's found in in poskim like um Levi Abu Lafia, um, the Yad Rama and the Sefer Hasidim, um, who actually talk about this, right? That if, uh, at least in the Sefer Hasidim, that if you get somebody sick, um, that that might see, be some sort of lifne iver, right? You're causing them um, to be damaged in a um, without actually striking them. Um, but the the but the more common usage in halachic terminology is where I, um, for the moment, I'll use the word enable. Um, enable somebody else uh, to sin. Um, so in a work environment, often we're not just dealing with, let's say, right, the, the case of the angry boss or the angry partner or the angry employee um, who's just gruff and he's making people feel bad, is insulting them. And you want to bring it up and say, listen, this is not how a work environment should be. Um, you know, you're hurting people's feelings. Can you please stop? Um, where, you know, there's clearly a, a violator um, and you're not implicated. It's not, your, it's not your fault. You just want to bring it. You want to bring it. You know, you want to put something on the table. You want to prevent them from harming others. You want to prevent them from being mean people when maybe you know that they're not usually or whatever the case may be. Um, but often in a work environment, it's more than that, right? Often if they're doing something unethical or illegal or sinful, um, you're not just present and therefore responsible to, to inform them and remind them that what they're doing is wrong, um, but you might be helping them. Um, so. If your um, your if someone's employee, their boss says, um, uh, you know, I would like you to. Um, I mean, we could take any example. I'd like you to, you know, fudge the you know help not fudge the numbers yourself. I'd like you to um, whatever help me fudge the numbers, right? I, I don't know exactly all the programs, but I want to fudge the, the numbers a little bit. I need uh, your help. I need access to certain files. You don't have to do it yourself, but, uh, but you know, whether they say it that explicitly or you know what they're doing, right? Um, or let's assume for the moment that insider trading um, is halachically problematic, um, which is a plausible assumption. Um, if they say, listen, you know, I heard you talking. I heard that you... Uh, you were uh, by the water cooler when uh, an important conversation was going on. Um, do you mind telling me what you heard? And you know that what they're going to do with that information is um, is illegal, is usur, is um, is unethical. Um, how does that change the um, the equation? So here we move into uh, lifne iver. So as I said, I mean halachic language lifne iver is often used when you enable somebody uh, to sin. So the Gemara in numbers in number nine in Avod Zarah in the first chapter says Amar Rabbi Natan Minayin Shuloyoshit Adam Kos Shalyayin Linazir. How do you know that you're not allowed to 
hand a um, a glass of wine to a Nazir. And as we know, a Nazir, a Nazarite, is not allowed to drink wine. So how do you know that you can't enable them? Um, and or give a limb of a um, live animal um, to a non-Jew, considering that um, one of the seven Noahide laws is a prohibition against eating meat from a live animal. How do you know that that's forbidden? Do not put a stumbling block before the blind. Um, now, Maimonides notes that the reason we call this blindness, um, even though, um, now again, in, in some of the other Tanaitic sources, in the, some of the Tanaitic sources, this is not true. Um, in the Sifra, for example, one only violates Lifnei Iver if one enables someone to violate a sin when the sinner doesn't know it's forbidden and therefore they are blind in that sense. But in this case, the potential sinner knows exactly what they're doing, whether it be the Nazarite who wants to drink the wine or the non-Jew here who wants to eat the live animal meat, or uh, in our theoretical example, the, uh, the employer, let's say, who wants um, inside information so that they can be involved in insider trading and make um, illegal money. They know exactly what they're doing. So in what sense are they blind such that by enabling them, you have um, made a blind person stumble? So the Rambam notes that we have an idea in halacha that people can be blinded by desire or blinded by greed, right? That sometimes even though people know things cognitively, um, we understand that emotionally they can be in a place where they don't really see it um, and therefore, you can't feed into um, you can't feed into that, um, and that's what lifne Iver means for Chazal. This idea of not helping people um, continue to be blinded by greed, desire, whatever the case may be. So then the Talmud says, "But wait a second. Um, how could it be that?" you violate Lifni Iver for handing a glass of wine to the Nazir, to the Nazarite. Um, if you don't, so then won't the Nazir just take the wine um, himself or herself? So why is it your fault? Meaning they don't need you. Yeah. Even if you hand it to them, what did you do? So in our you know, example, um, if the, um, you know, if, the employer um, isn't asking you what conversation you happen to overhear that they can't access, but they're asking you, um, you know, they know that there is a, uh, you know, a printout of the, uh, the minutes of a meeting that they can use to, to get inside information. They ask you for it, um, but if you say no, um, they can just walk into the room. It's not like anyone's guarding it. I mean, there's probably a problem, but let's just, say that's the case, um, and the minutes of the meeting are just sitting there on the table. Um, so the fact that you hand them your copy um, when they could just go into the to the office and, and take themselves, um, what exactly did you do wrong? That's what the Talmud asks. So the Gemara then says, Hachi, but my askinan, so what's the case? Dekai betray avre nahara. Um, the case is where you are standing on two sides of the river. Now, what does that mean? So there are basically two um, approaches to understanding this, uh, this passage. Um, people don't really realize there are two. Um, 
but as uh, Reb Nachum Rabbi Novich noted, I'm um, in the Abshuta um, and in several other places, um, um, Rabbeinu Hananel um, on the Gemara has a has a interpretation that differs from the majority view, but explains a lot of um, p- medieval positions that otherwise are unexplainable, like that of Maimonides. Um, so Rashi understands the Gemara as follows. He says that Lifni Iver on a biblical level, um, you have to distinguish between cases where you are aiding sin and you are enabling sin. If you enable sin, meaning without you, the sinner could not have accomplished the sin, then by enabling them to violate, to be engaged in this unethical activity, you violate Lifneiver. You have put the stumbling block before them. And that is called in the language of the Gemara, Trey Avre Nahara, two sides of the river. The image is that the Nazir is standing on one side of the river. You are standing on the other side of the river. And the only cup of wine um, in the area is the cup of wine on your side of the river. And there is no bridge. There is no way for the, for the person to come over and get it. Um, so the only way for the, him to get the wine is for you to, um, I don't know, let's make it um, creative, um, is to put it in a shatterproof um, bottle, right? And either float it across the river or throw it across the river. If it's the Jordan, which is really not so big um, or something like that, that probably won't work in the Mississippi. Um, but, you know, the Jordan River is um, not so big. I mean, maybe at the end of winter right now, it's a little bit bigger, but you go there in the middle of the summer, um, and you wonder why this was considered a miracle that the Jews needed the water to split. Um, you can walk over it. It's not miraculous. It's it's called walking, um, maybe doggy paddling. It's really not a big deal. Um, but whatever the case may be, he gets the wine too. So that is forbidden. But if if you're on the same side of the river, so then it's not because the Nazir will say, can I have the wine? If you say no, we'll say, okay, I'll take it myself. And that's not the biblical violation of Lifnei Iver. That is how uh, Rashi understands it. This is the traditional approach by many, many, many halachic authorities who distinguish between, again, cases where the sinner could have done the sin without you, in which case you don't violate the biblical prohibition, <coughs> and cases where the sinner could not have violated without your help, in which case it's your fault on a biblical level. That's called Lifnei Iver. Um, Rabbeinu Hananel, well, I'll start in a different way. Maimonides never quotes this distinction ever, um, ever. And many of the later authorities try to figure out why, because they assume that Rashi is right. Um, but as Rabinovich notes, Rabbeinu Hananel has a different interpretation. And Rabbeinu Hananel says the issue here is not enabling versus helping or aiding. The issue is um, whether the sinner, criminal, whatever you want to call him, um, can coerce you to help them or not. And if you're on the same side of the river, the assumption is that they can coerce you to help. Um, And therefore, if you help them, it is not your fault because you were coerced. But if you're on two sides of the river and therefore you are at a safe distance, um, they cannot coerce you and therefore Um, If you help them, it is of your own volition. And the difference between cases in which you violate Lifnever and don't is whether or not the criminal, the sinner, can coerce you to help them or not. 
Um, and therefore, potentially, if you're on the same side of the river and they can't coerce you because, I don't know, you have the upper hand, um, then you would violate um, Lifnaiver, even though um, even though they could accomplish the sin without you. But at the end of the day, if they can't coerce you to help, and you, then when you help, you are doing it of your own choice, and that is problematic. Um, and that's actually Rabbi Novich Paskins. That's how he rules. I mean, this is quite far-reaching um, implications. Um, but that's Lifne Iver. Um, now, there is a notion that even in a case in which, um, even within Rashi, you are not enabling sin, you're just helping, right? Meaning the sinner, the criminal could have accomplished his goal or her goal without you. If you help, you might not violate the biblical prohibition, but Tosvot argues in at least one place, I'm um, in Shabbat 3a, um, that even if we're dealing with a case where he could have taken it, where he would not violate placing a stumbling block, still there's a rabbinic prohibition as he is obligated to separate him from prohibitions. Um, rabbinically, you're not even allowed to help. Right? You're not allowed to help even if they could have done it without you. So back in our work case, um, if your boss could get the relevant meet minutes from the meeting that would allow them to engage in insider trading and they could do it without you, um, according to Toast Vote, that might not be lifting even on a biblical level, but on a rabbinic level, it would still be problematic. Um, the Ramah notes that um, this is a dispute. Um, this is a dispute. Um, some are stringent. And he notes that actually the custom is like the first position um, that technically um, we don't believe in this uh, rabbinic prohibition and one who is careful should be strict on himself. So technically maybe there's room to be lenient um, in cases where you're only helping and not enabling, um, but it's better not to. However, the Shach, um, Rav Shabtai Cohen Rappaport in the 17th century, Lithuania, um, argues that no, um, we actually do rule that um, you can't even help someone commit a crime or a sin, um, even if they could have done it without you. The difference is um, whether you're dealing with a, uh, a Jew in good standing, in which case your, your responsibility for their moral well-being is higher, or you're dealing with a, a non-Jew or a rebellious Jew um, where the, the standard is lower, in which case you can't enable them to sin, but um, helping when they could have done it without you is not going to be problematic. Um, and that is the Shach's um, position. And many halachic authorities are stringent like the Shach, um, that they say, at least for a Jew in good standing, um, you can neither help um, or enable them to sin. So the second category, Right? So again, the first category we talked about was if someone in your workplace is doing something wrong, um, we'll stick with the example we said, is simply being gruff in the morning uh, and yelling at, at the employees, yelling at the partners, yelling at you know workers or yelling at their boss, whatever the case may be. Um, even if you're not implicated in that, um, you do have a moral halachic responsibility, ideally to tell the person, listen, that's not the right thing if there is a chance of helping. If, however, there's no chance that you bringing it up, your conversation will be helpful, um, or maybe it'll be counterproductive, or maybe you'll get hurt in the process, you'll lose your job or something like that, then you don't have to worry about it. That's case one. Case two is where you are asked to somehow be involved in the crime, either by enabling them, 
right? So providing the insider information um, that let's say your boss doesn't have without you so that they can engage in insider trading um, or helping them, right? Making it easier for them to access the information, but they could do it without you. And there, if you enable them, right? If without you, they could not be involved in this sin, in this crime, in this unethical activity, then that is the biblical prohibition of lifne Iver. There is very little room to maneuver. That's extremely problematic. And again, we're not yet dealing with, which we'll deal with next week. This is going to be relevant for it, obviously. Um, what if the only way to stop them is um, by whistleblowing, right? That's next week. Right now, we're sort of getting the principles on the table of why you're responsible to do anything. Um, and then we talked about what happens when you... Um, aren't enabling them. They could do it without you, um, but you are helping. So for that, Tosvot says, if they're a Jew in good standing, you have to. You can't do that either. Um, the Ramah is a little bit less clear, um, depending on whether the Shach, and the Shach thinks that we do rule like Tosvot, though it's not clear within the Ramah whether he agrees. Um, though, as I noted, based on Rebbe Binovich's analysis um, within the Rambam, um, any case in which you are helping someone commit a crime um, and you're not being coerced or you weren't potentially coerced into it, um, then we're dealing not even with rabbinic lifnaver, but we're dealing with the biblical prohibition. So that case would be extremely, um, extremely problematic. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll pause here before we go to the next, uh, the next potential category. Um, any questions, comments, suggestions for other relevant factors? Um, okay, so I'll move to the, the next category then. Um, now, the next category out, um, if we're sort of thinking about concentric circles, about you know, how responsible I, I am um, in terms of um, you know, preventing other people from doing something wrong when I'm not actually doing it myself, so we talked about the most extreme, um, which is where I am enabling the crime. And that is Lifna Iver. We talked about where I'm helping, where according to Maimonides, that may also be Lifna Iver. Um, according to Tosvot, it may be a rabbinic prohibition. Of, um, there's, yet a, there's a category sort of one level out um, where I didn't necessarily help in the crime, but post facto, I am, through my actions, I show support to the illicit, unethical, criminal behavior, um, and that is problematic. Um, so the classic example of this is um, buying stolen goods. So here, the Mishnah tells you, Bavakama, ein lochim in aroim tzemer you don't buy wool or goat milk from shepherds um, because the assumption is that the sheep are not their own. They belong to the people who hired them. Um, and therefore, you are helping them steal. Um, and fruit watchmen who don't own their own fruit, if they're selling you fruit, it's likely that isn't their own. It is fruit that they sort of skimmed off the top while they were supposed to be stopping other people from stealing, maybe they did, but they also stole a little bit um, themselves. And as the Rambam summarizes very succinctly, number 14, anything with a presumption that it is stolen is forbidden to buy. 
And so too, we don't buy it if the majority of the object is stolen, right? Anything when you think it's stolen or the majority of these objects are stolen, you don't get involved. Uh, and the Talmud very gives a very simple parable to explain why. Um, in 15, the Talmud in Kedushan 56b says, if it is not the mouse who steals, it is the hole that steals. And if there was no, um, sorry, other, right. And if there was no mouse, what would the hole have done, right? So the Talmud basically says, listen, um, in order to, for a mouse to steal or to take food, it needs to know it has somewhere to put it. Um, and without that, right, the process has two stages. Someone doesn't steal usually, um, definitely not more than, you know, larger quantities unless they have something to do with it. And if no one buys stolen goods, so then they won't steal. Um, and Shulchan rules this way as well. It's forbidden to buy the stolen object from a thief and it is great sin because you support the hands of sinners and cause them to steal more. For if they would not find binder, buyers, they would not steal. And you should not help a thief in any way so that he can steal. This is the, this is the case. He knows for sure that it's still an object. Um, so when someone steals, you are not allowed to, to buy it from them because you have post facto um, enabled them or maybe put it differently, you've created an atmosphere in which um, crime pays, right? In which crime pays. Um, so, um, right, we could take a million examples. Obviously we could talk about stealing examples where you shouldn't buy stolen goods, but you can imagine that this idea, the prohibition of supporting the wicked um, would have other implications in a work environment. So. Um, going back to, let's say, our insider trading, um, right? If, um, you know, if a lower level employee who doesn't have enough money to actually invest in the, uh, in the stock market and take advantage of insider information, um, you know, eavesdrops in order to get the information um, because they know that, you know, someone higher up will appreciate it. <clears throat> if, they know that everybody in the higher ups or anybody who could possibly take advantage of that information uh, wouldn't, so then it wouldn't pay for them to, uh, to take the information. So then they, they won't, um, or they're less likely to. Um, and therefore, right, so in the earlier case, we talked about someone initiating and saying, you know, can you give me that information? Now we would say, listen, um, even if you could, I mean, this is maybe not the perfect example because maybe insider trading itself is the problem. So we'd have to think of an example. But if, um, you know, if by you post facto, after at least one level of crime has already been committed, one unethical act has already been done, someone tries to take advantage of it, um, that's a problem because you are encouraging the atmosphere in which um, people think that crime pays. Um, and that is, is problematic. Um, uh, so Randy says, what about taking charity from a criminal? Um, yeah, so that's going to be the, right. That is a very, um, similar problem, right. Where, um, let's say, right. We're talking about now, right. So if you are, um, whatever you are a, you run a nonprofit, um, and you know that the money that someone's giving you is unethical, um, and, uh, perhaps let's make it better. You know, that they wouldn't steal, um, or make money unethically if they didn't have some way to assuage their guilt. Um, you know, that they steal a million dollars, but they assuage their guilt by giving $100,000 um, to your 
you know, synagogue and um, donating the, I don't know, the parochet, um, I don't know, whatever, right? Um, then yeah, at some level, that might be a similar violation where you are enabling um, a, a culture in which um, people have something to do with that money. It's a little bit different, um, but yeah, that, that may potentially um, fall under this, uh, this category. Um, so that's another category that you need to, to think about. Um, the Aruch HaSholchan, I'll skip 18, but it goes to Aruch HaSholchan. Um, the Aruch HaSholchan takes this farther. Um, so Rebichil uh, Michal Epstein in the 19th century argues that um, there might be yet another category of machzik of supporting sinners, um, and he said it's not just that it's forbidden to buy stolen goods, but according to the tour, it's forbidden to buy anything from a thief, even non-stolen go goods, or help them at all. Right. So he suggests that that it's possible that this category actually demands more than. Um, just not buying stolen goods, right? But maybe it actually forbids um, being in business with thieves, with people who are engaged in illegal activity or in unethical activity. Um, and this definitely goes to Randy's point, right? Where um, maybe supporting sinners isn't just supporting them in the crime itself, but is... Um, giving them standing in the community. Um, and that is problematic, right? Buying anything from them, right? Meaning if someone is, a, we'll go back to the thief example. If you know that someone sells stolen goods, but you're not buying that from them, but you know that, you know, they couldn't, in order for them to survive, they need to have some legitimate business and some illegitimate business. So you avoid the illegitimate business, um, but you engage with them in legitimate business, but by you engaging with them in, an, in legitimate business, it allows them to um, have standing in the business community um, and therefore be engaged in the illegal activities as well. So according to the Aruch HaSholchan, that is also problematic. Um, so the third category we, we have to deal with, um, right? So again, the first thing was simply the obligation to rebuke, um, to tell people off for what they're doing. The second was, was you can't enable people in their quest to do something illegal or unethical. And then the third category is once someone has committed something, a crime, done something unethical, you can't benefit from it in a way that enables them to, um, you know, post facto benefit from their crime as it encourages the culture of crime. And maybe according to the Aruch HaSholchan, you can't even grant that person standing um, by doing even legitimate business um, if it's going to enable them to be in a place where they can also be involved in illegitimate business. Okay, Randy, I see your hand is, uh, your hand is up. Yeah, um, I, I hope this doesn't take us off topic. And also, I haven't, I don't know if you've discussed this in prior classes, which I wasn't here. But um, what about, um, what, what do we mean by unethical? Um, I'm specifically interested in, I mean, if if the government, obviously a non-Jewish government here, uh, has rules such as maybe even zoning rules or something, and and you know you don't follow them, is that does that fall into these categories? Right. So the, so this is sort of the elephant to the room, right? Is here I'm sort of sketching out the broad categories, which is and I'm sort of you know fudging the categories and saying 
forbidden, you know, unethical, illegal. Uh, but you're right. A full analysis would have to take it topic by topic where, right, we can have cases where there's a Torah violation. And then on a local Torah level, we could just say, yeah, you can't steal and you can't support theft. Um, and then you can deal with things where um, halacha has nothing to say on it per se. Uh, zoning is a good example, right? Meaning maybe in theory, halacha has something on zoning, but the specific zoning rules in your you know, city, halacha doesn't have anything to say about. Meaning if the government chose X, it would be X. If the government chose Y, it would be Y. Um, and the potential halachic category there would be dina de malchuta, is the obligation to listen to the law of the land. Um, so that's obviously for a lot of these things going to be the relevant category, right? There's going to be a lot of cases where there isn't something where halacha in a vacuum would look down on something. Um, but because halacha obligates us to listen to the law of the land, um, you know, trying to violate zoning laws, um, again, maybe it's not a direct Torah violation, but it's an indirect Torah violation through Dina de Malchuta, through the obligation to listen to the laws of the land, in which case these principles should apply um, as well. So, so uh, I see you're talking, Randy, but you're on mute. So you just have to unmute. Just Sorry. Uh, what about a real life example on a number of years ago, Orthodox groups, um, educational groups took money for, um, I believe it was for computer installations, but they never, they never, they never intended to actually install the computers. So they're sort of stealing from the government there. Would yeah. that fall? So that, that, yeah, well, that would just be theft. I mean, that would just that be theft. Be theft. Right. Okay. Um, right. I mean, that just, you know, be, be theft. Right. Meaning, you know, I, I've, 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 yeah. Right. Like I've, you know, I, I've made this point before that like, you know, sometimes people mix things up, like paying taxes is oblig obligatory under Dina de Malchuta. But if you're getting a refund from the government and you lie about how much of a refund you deserve, that's not the reason you can't do that is not just Dina de Malchuta, it's theft because now they're giving you money right? Um, and you've lied about how much money they owe you, right? That's just theft. That's not, you know, Malhuta. you always, right? You got to be careful there. Um, but yeah, you're right, right? You take money that you don't deserve, that, that's theft. Um, okay. Um, now, if we go one concentric circle out, um, so we've talked about enabling sin. We've talked about helping with sin. We've talked about post facto sub creating a, an environment in which sin is possible. Um, there is another category, and that is called condoning and agreeing with sin. Um, and this is something that many people don't know about, um, but it's actually quite serious in halacha. Um, and it comes from the following. The Talmud says in number 20 that, let's say, like this year, it's the sabbatical year, it's Shemitah, um, and you see a non-Jew working the field. Um, you see a non-Jewish farmer in Israel. So the law is we can support non-Jews during the sabbatical year. Um, now, what does that mean? So the Talmud says support means like you can, um, you can say good luck, have a good day. I hope you're, you're successful because they don't have to keep the laws of Shemitah and therefore there's nothing wrong with them working the field. Um, however, by implication, a Jew, you couldn't do it. And the Talmud at the end says, what does it mean to support? Rabbi Yehuda would say, be strong. Rabbi Sheshit would say, be firm, right? Support means good luck, right? I hope you're successful. Um, now, the implication is, as the Morgan Avram notes in 21, Rabbi Avram Gombina, writing in the 17th century, 
it is the proper thing to tell a worker, succeed in your work, even to a non-Jew. The right thing to say is, have a good day at work. I hope you're successful. I hope you make money. I hope you have whatever. However, one who is involved in forbidden work, it's forbidden to say this to him. Um, right, so here, this category is very different. This is not you're being asked to help, right? But you see your boss or your partner or your employee um, I don't know, uh, stealing a company pencil, okay? Let's take something small, but still, right? They're stealing um, supplies, okay? Assume that the, the, the company actually cares, so it's theft, right? This is very simple, right? The company says, no one can take pencils home, and you see someone taking a pencil home. Whether that's the policy they should have, I don't care, not my, but let's say that is the policy, okay? and you see someone taking a pencil. Um, you don't help them, you don't hand it to them, you don't buy it from them, but you say, um, you know, oh, you're taking, you know, you know that you're, uh, let's say, let's say it's your employee, okay? So you're the manager, um, but you're not in charge of the company, the corporate policy on pencils. You know that your employee likes to do sketching and you assume that your employee is, um, is taking the pencil home to do a sketch for art. Um, so the, the halacha is you can't say, right, uh, use that, use that pencil. I want to see the art that you, that you, uh, you know, the sketch that you make with that pencil. Um, that is called supporting sin, showing support, condoning sin. And that's problematic, uh, as well. Now, um, um, Rabbi Avram and David Stav point out that according to the Rambam, um, who, as we saw before, thinks that even when you don't enable sin, um, it could be lifnev or biblically, if in any way you help. Um, it's potentially the case that this category is actually biblically prohibited um, as lifnev, as some sort of helping in sin, because, you know, by, by condoning it, you're making it emotionally easier for this time your employee to take that pencil uh, home. And therefore, it's, uh, it's lifnev. Um, however, I mean, it might be something else um, called Hanifa in 23, um, which um, comes from this story uh, in the Talmud, where King Agrippas, he was a non-Jewish king, um, or at least half non-Jewish, um, and when he would read the verse, you shall not place a stranger upon yourself, right, that you can't have a non-Jewish king, um, his eyes ran with tears, and they, the sages, said to them, do not fear, Agrippas. You are our brother. You are our brother. Um, don't worry. You're allowed to be king. We support you. Um, and the Talmud says that at that moment, the enemies of Israel became liable for destruction, for flattering Agrippas, right? For telling him, you are our brother. It's okay. Um, even though he really wasn't okay, he wasn't allowed to be king. Um, simply condoning him, um, condoning his violation is forbidden. And as the Miri notes in 24, um, one who flatters a wicked person, praising him for his corrupt actions, is like him. Those who hear it depend upon him and are drawn into the deeds of the wicked, right? He says at some level, people don't do things wrong unless there's a culture that accepts it, right? And if everybody at work was extremely vigilant about not stealing pencils from the workplace, then someone would feel really awkward um, violating it and taking the pencil home. But if you know, if the manager will tell them, 
oh, I, I want to see what you color at home with that pencil. Um, even they know they know that the higher ups um, don't approve of it and think it's stealing. Um, the employer, the employee rather, is going to say, listen, my direct boss doesn't care. No one's ever going to find out. Clearly, it's okay. And you've by by simply saying good luck, um, it's okay. Enjoy um, when it really isn't okay. You have um, created an environment that is more amenable uh, to sin. Um, I gave you a little bit of summary here in um, in number twenty two from an article I wrote, um, which is going to be a chapter in the the book I'm putting out now with Koren. Um, you can follow the link um, and see some of the implications I suggest there for um, for retweeting and and sharing posts on social media. Um, but sort of just keep that in the back of of the back of your mind. Um, so this is yet another category you have to think about, right? That sometimes. Um, even if you're not helping, you're not aiding, you're not even post facto um, supporting the sinner, sometimes simply by saying something as, as simple as good luck, it's okay, um, I support you, um, anything like that, you've created an environment in which people know or feel like they can get away with, with crime, with unethical activity, um, or in fact, they don't even realize that it's really bad because, hey, my manager said that I could take the pencil. So it must be that the corporate policy um, isn't serious. Um, and in that case, simply by saying, um, you know, enjoy, you have, um, right, you've really created a, a serious uh, problem. Um, the exception to this is if you have to show support um, for your own safety. And this is based on a passage, I'll just say it outside of number 27, where um, Rabbi Yochanan ran into a, a murderer. Um, and the murderer, um, sorry, Ula ran into a murderer while he was murdering someone. Um, and the murderer turned to Ula and said, did I murder well? Uh, and Ula said, uh, yes, you were great. You, you really, you, you were a great murderer. Um, and then he came to Rabbi Yochan and he said, did I do something wrong um, because I condoned it? And Rabbi Yochan had said, no, that was the right thing to say at that time. It was clear the guy wanted to kill anyone who didn't agree with him. Sometimes you got to say things. Um, sometimes you got to say things um, to protect yourself. So barring a case where you have to agree with a crime to protect yourself, uh, this is really problematic. Um, and like I said, in the workplace, um, this could really happen, right? And again, the example of the manager who says, yeah, you know what, I don't care if you take the pencil um, when it's against corporate policy and the manager doesn't actually have the authority to let his worker take the pencil, um, the simple act of saying it's okay um, is, um, is problematic. That is condoning the sin. It's creating an environment in which the crime can take place. Um, and again, this could be an employer to an employee. It could be an employer to, it could be employee to employer. Um, and that is also something to keep in, in mind. Um, and, and here I just gave you in, in 29, um, a little bit of a, of a summary that Rebus Weiss notes that at some level uh, condoning um, is sometimes more problematic than actually helping um, because it really fosters a problematic environment um, 
Um, and then I gave you the Maram Shik note that sometimes silence is also like that, right? If a, an employee is taking the pencil and then their boss shows up and looks away very pointedly, right? Just doesn't pay attention, makes it clear they don't care. Then even without saying something, they have condoned the action, which is actually stealing. Um, and that is um, and that is also going to be uh, problematic. Um, and as the uh, the the Kalmavasar Vashilam Roth notes in the 20th century Israel, um, you know, there is no difference between a lot of help or a little help. But at the end of the day, you have an obligation to prevent crime, sin. Um, and even if you know you do something small that contributes, uh, that is is problematic. Um, the last category I want to say very quickly um, is um, partnering with, with wicked people. And again, partnership could mean partners. It could mean um, choosing to work with somebody, either as an employer, as an employee, as a manager in their company, um, with wicked people. Um, this is also problematic. The Mishnah and Avot says that right, stay far away from a bad neighbor. Do not attach yourself to an evil person and do not despair of punishment. Um, and from here, we learn that there is this, uh, this problem of, of partnering um, with unethical uh, people, in addition to all the problems we talked about of enabling sin and condoning sin, simply having a partnership with these people um, is, uh, is problematic. Um, I'm going to skip the next sources. Um, I'm just going to note that uh, basically in 34, to, uh, to 37, um, one of the questions that authorities sometimes raise is, okay, um, I know that this is all true ideally, but um, what happens in a case where, uh, I don't know, I need, I, I need to listen to a particular broadcast um, and you know, by watching a TV program or something that I need to for work, I know that at some level by like adding to the ratings of this, uh, of this Thing I'm encouraging unethical activity, right? I don't know. It's some very ill-conceived uh, reality show that really, you know, humiliates people and is clearly against Torah values. Um, but by watching it, um, you know, the ratings go up and encourages them to produce more. Um, so in general, we should avoid that. Um, however, in cases when you're not enabling it, um, and there are other people who are going to watch it as well. Um, so then. Um, especially once we go to the lower levels, like the rabbinic prohibitions, where you're helping but not enabling sin. Um, so there, the authorities are more lenient. Um, if without that, you will lose your job or something like that. Now, right, obviously, um, we should always avoid any sort of participation in problematic activity. But sometimes we know that, you know, if I'm writing a, um, you know, I don't know, a critical piece about the, um, the problems of a certain type of TV show, um, for my job, um, and I need to, to watch the show. So even though, yes, technically their statistics will show that one more person watched it and their ratings will be slightly higher, but without that, the show will probably go on. And without me watching it, I can't do my job to write a review. Um, so that would be um, permitted. So again, just to summarize, we have one minute left. Um, the workplace, more than perhaps many of the other places we are in life, there are many opportunities to um, interact with people who are doing th things that are problematic, um, being called on to help them um, or enable them. 
to create environments in which their ill-gotten gains are rewarded, um, in which our employers, our employees, or our partners look to us for approval um, for their unethical or illegal activities. Um, and we sometimes have to deal with the question of who should we partner with and who should we work with? And what we've seen is several categories that give us at least the beginning of guidelines of how we should do with it. The first was rebuke, where the ideal is to talk to somebody um, if there's any hope that talking them will change it, um, even when you're not implicated in the sin or the unethical activity, acknowledging that if it's going to be a personal risk to you, you might not have to. Um, if you're called on to actually help, let's say your boss, do something unethical. So if you're actually, they couldn't do it without you, that's lifne iver, um, and that's biblically prohibited. If they could do it without you, uh, so it's still potentially rabbinically prohibited. Um, if someone has already committed a crime and now they want to sell their ill-gotten gains to you, um, so that's problematic because you're creating an environment where that's accepted. Um, if you are in a position like the employer seeing his employee taking a pencil when he can't um, to condone it or not condone it, um, you can't condone it. And if your silence will be taken as condoning it um, and creating an environment where someone thinks that's okay, uh, so that's also problematic. Um, and then the last things we dealt with were partnerships where you really have to be careful um, who you partner with. Um, and then the last thing we noted is that well, obviously, ideally, we all want to keep our noses clean and stay as far away from um, problematic behavior as we can. We all know that that's not always possible. Um, and therefore, definitely when we're dealing with the lower levels of um, rabbinic prohibitions where you're sort of indirectly involved and they could have done it without you, um, if it's absolutely ne necessary for your job, so then the halakhic authorities note that there is a little bit more flexibility. So again, for this week, um, I just sort of wanted to overview the issues. Um, and next week, what we're going to deal with specifically is whistleblowing, which is when um, the only way for you to stop what is happening is to uh, publicize um, the crime or unethical activity that's happening, um, specifically returning to a case where there is a power dynamic um, in play that makes it hard for the whistleblower to um, to effectively do it without risk to themselves. Um, what is the responsibility of, let's say, an employee in an environment when they know that the higher ups are doing something wrong and they can stop it or at least try by, by telling the world what's going on? Um, and again, that will draw on a lot of the overarching principles that we set up uh, today. Okay, with that, if there are any questions, um, comments, I am, um, I am happy to hear them. I'll stop the share so I can see the screen. Um, yeah, turn it to you. Yeah, feel free to unmute if you have uh, any questions or comments, or you can write them um, in the comment here. We'll give it a couple of minutes, see if anyone has any questions or comments, and otherwise we will um, meet again next week. Okay, so we have our, um, we have our last uh, class uh, next week, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, thank you so much again, Rabbi Ziering. Uh, this was our fifth class, and, la and next week will be our sixth and last class. Thank you also to everyone who uh, joined us here today on Zoom, on Facebook, and also on Drisha Live. Um, if you missed any of the previous classes, you can access recordings of um, previous classes at uh, www.drisha.org slash live. Uh, tomorrow, we have uh, another live class uh, tomorrow evening, Thursday uh, at 8 p.m., 
Northeastern, which will be the, the fourth class, I believe, um, in the series, uh, the invention of the seven uh, day week with uh, Dr. Ezra Zuckerman Sivan. Um, you're uh, always welcome to find uh, more information about upcoming classes and class offerings. We always have a lot of things going on. Um, our website is www.drisha.org slash classes. Uh, thanks again, uh, Rabbi Ziering. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. And again, hope to see everyone else at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. See you next week.